0: Welcome to the History Extra podcast, fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. When were dogs first domesticated? Why was adopting an animal from the temporary home for lost and starving dogs such a radical move in Victorian London? And how did a dog napping case change the life of the 19th century poet Elizabeth Barrett Browning? In our latest Everything You Wanted to Know episode, we're answering your top questions on, yes, the history of dogs. Charlotte Hodgman put your questions on everything from dog breeds to crufts to Professor Julie Marie Strange, whose books include The Invention of the Modern Dog, Breed and Blood in Victorian Britain.
2: So we've had quite a few people on Twitter and Facebook asking about when dogs were first domesticated. So C. Dank on Twitter, Rowan Mill on Facebook, they both wanted to know, do we know when this first happened? So
3: it's it's a really good question. And what we think is that dogs, well, that wolves became more like dogs, I guess. So there's been a relationship between humans and wolves, what we might call friendly wolves, for about twenty-five to 30,000 years. So we're talking about a long, long time. What we know is that dogs and wolves share around 99% of their DNA. But Obviously, wolves and dogs are quite distinct. So, dogs are the breed we ha- we have now that is domesticated and that has become increasingly domesticated over those thousands of years. If you think about Aesop's fables, um, Aesop has a story called um, "The Wolf and the House Dog," which summarizes quite nicely our relationship with these two species. In the fable, the wolf is um, is wild and um, he's starving, and he meets um, a house dog, and the house dog is appalled because this is his cousin, and he wants to invite him home and says, you know, if you come home with me, there's lots of food, you know, and I have all this comfort and this love, and the wolf thinks, gosh, yeah, you know, I've been missing out on this for so long. And then the dog explains more about what being domesticated means. And the wolf realises actually this dog is a slave to humans. And the wolf decides to keep freedom and famine rather than sacrifice his independence to go and be domesticated. And I think it's a really interesting way of thinking about the domestic dog. There is a suggestion, there's lots of debate about the domestication of dogs. And as humans, we like to assume that we've done dogs a favour by domesticating them. And I think what Aesop's fable shows quite nicely is that's not necessarily true. Dogs in the wild can survive. Dogs are not naturally tame. We have to train them to be tame. So there is a question of can dogs live without us much better than we can live without dogs? And so, this relationship of domestication is not straightforward necessarily, and it's a very human-centric concept of domestication being a good thing for dogs.
2: So, Oren Hofer on uh, Twitter wanted to know when did dogs first start to be kept as pets, you know, for leisure rather than sort of hunting or, or other types of work. So some dogs have been kept as pets
3: for centuries, especially kind of lap dogs, you know, uh, dogs that were sort of bred to be house companions. But there's also, in a way, a false distinction between working dogs and leisure dogs. A lot of working dogs, particularly um, sheep dogs, would have retired. Um, Shepherds and sheep dogs have long had a very close relationship. But if we're thinking about dogs that are bred for a leisure market, that tends to become much more common and widespread in the 19th century. So we get this um, explosion in the 19th century of a consumer market for dogs. And by 1851, we have the first kind of pet manual. Uh, It's written by Jane Luden, and she writes um, a book called "The um, Pets. Uh, It's on their domestic management and how to keep them. And this is the first kind of pet manual that acknowledges that dogs, even if they live outside the house, house often have an emotional relationship with the inhabitants of the house and so definitely by the mid uh, 19th century we see this kind of it becomes much more common to keep dogs as your friend although sometimes they will still have a a function Um, so a lot of dogs are what what would are called watchdogs what we would maybe call guard dogs but they're usually quite embedded within family and domestic life
2: as well. Okay and when do we sort of first see perhaps what we we call sort of people breeding dogs? Where do people get their dogs from if they wanted a particular type of dog?
3: Yeah, so so this is really interesting that the 19th century is part of this explosion in dog keeping um, and keeping dogs as your friend. It also leads to unintended consequences. So if, for example, I'm at home and I'm with my terrier, who I adore and is my, my constant companion, That dog then has an emotional value to me as well as a financial value. And what we see in the 1830s and the 1840s is an explosion in what's called dog napping. So as dogs become more popular, their financial value rises as their emotional value rises. So we get all these dog napping incidents where dogs are held for ransom. And you either pay the ransom to get your dog back. Or the dog then goes on the market again to be resold. So actually buying dogs in the 19th century at this moment when keeping dogs as pets is becoming more popular is actually quite fraught because you ca- you need to be certain of the provenance of your dog. Where did it come from? There are an awful lot of stolen dogs on the market. You then need to be really careful about how you keep your dog safe. So there's lots of anxiety about where you buy your dog from, who is the dog seller, where did they get that dog, what can you know about it? And so this then sparks a huge kind of outpouring of advice on how to buy a dog from a reputable source. Um, And so what we get is the promotion of dog breeders, people who are deemed to be honest and respectable and who you can rely on to have bred dogs themselves that they they have the parents and that these are dogs with proven provenance so it's it's actually quite difficult if you go to a breeder to buy your dog they're usually more expensive because you're paying for the provenance and you're paying for knowing where the dog came from most people however will buy their dogs off the street and they'll buy them from street sellers and from market stalls. And that's where you have the real danger in that you don't know where the dog came from there's a study of London sellers in the 1850s um, and the 1860s that notes some of these prices are just too good to be true and if you think that the price is too good to be true it
2: probably is Mm, (laughs) yes nothing (laughs) much changes there is it are there any sort of famous instances of of dog napping that you can you can think of
3: (laughs) oh yes there's a wonderful story Um, Elizabeth Barrett Browning uh, the poet so she is Elizabeth Barrett she lives with Um, a very controlling father. Um, She's single. um, Her brothers have lots of autonomy. And she has um, a Spaniel, Flush. Elizabeth is um, an invalid. She doesn't leave the house very often. And she and Flush are constant companions. Now, her staff take flush out for walks. Flush is dognapped an astonishing three times. Oh gosh. And Elizabeth is devastated. The first two times um, her brothers negotiate the payment of the ransom and they get flushed back. Of course, the more you pay the ransom, the more vulnerable you are because the nappers know you're good for, <laughs> you're good for coming up with the ransom. So when Flush is dognapped for the third time, Elizabeth's brother uh, is much more reluctant to go and redeem Flush because he says, we're just, this is just insane. It's endless. Um, and so Elizabeth arises from her invalid couch and goes into the den of the dognappers herself. Wow. Um, which, you know, for an early Victorian single woman, especially one that had spent much of her life sheltered indoors. This is, I mean, it's staggering, the bravery and the determination of this woman to go and retrieve her dog. And she does, she brings Flush home. And it's a wonderful prelude because then Elizabeth has been having a kind of clandestine relationship with Robert Browning. And uh, she then she and Flush then elope with Robert Browning, and they marry, and they flee to Italy. Um, and it's kind of this wonderful sort of ending for Elizabeth and Flush that they that they escape both the dog nappers and The Invalid Couch uh, for This Wonderful Life in Italy. So yeah, and Virginia Woolf writes um, a fabulous uh, biography. Well, it's an autobiography of Flush where she writes it in the the voice of Flush. And I think we often think of Virginia Woolf as being very serious. And Flush is just such a wonderful, wonderful book where she captures the relationship between Elizabeth and Flush really well. And uh, Virginia Woolf based... um, everything she wrote about Flush on her own Spaniel, Pinker, who'd been a gift from uh, her friend and sometime lover, Vita Sackville-West. So it's a really great story.
1: (laughs) This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE.
2: That's an incredible story. I've never, I'd never heard of that. That's a, that's an incredible story. Another, another question that's come up quite a lot. Um, Barbara Brady on Facebook um, is, is one of the people who wanted to know the answer to this one, which was the kind of the origins of registered breeds at dog shows and 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 that type of thing. When do we start sort of seeing the the rise of that?
3: Yes. So again, so this mid 19th century moment is kind of when everything is happening for dogs. And in the dog world, we can debate whether or not that's always in the interests of dogs. But before the 1850s, um, we have what we would call, we have dog breeds, but they're often um, interchangeable with um, dog types, dog varieties, dog kinds. So when people say the word breed, What they're talking about is not necessarily a very specific fixed idea of a dog. It is a much more flexible, elastic category of a dog kind. And what we have is dogs grouped into probably key groups. So you have um, shooting dogs, coursing hounds, you have lap dogs, and you also have a a kind of dog that is a ratter. They're often terriers or um, a, a beautiful dog. So so those are kind of your key breeds of dogs. They're they're not necessarily about a pug must look a very particular way. And and that's the case until the 1850s. What we see in the 1850s is an increase of interest in showing dogs. Now, this grows out of um, agricultural shows. And livestock shows where people have been breeding for particular characteristics for, for a long time. And so people start to include dogs in these kinds of shows. Now, initially, it's about sporting dogs and it's about sort of measuring like how good um, a shooting dog is at doing the job they're they're bred to do. So it's very much about function. What we see, and the first kind of dog show that really does that um, is in 1859, and that takes place in Newcastle upon Tyne, and it's entirely about shooting dogs and sporting dogs. The very first dog show that looks at non-sporting dogs is in Birmingham in 1860, and that's about looking at dogs and thinking, okay, so this is a terrier type. What do we think of the best kind of terrier type dog is. And so that becomes much more about looking at form rather than function. And that's where we really get the beginning of dog shows as we know them now. It's about a show that judges a dog on how it looks rather than the job it was supposed to do, following its its breed type, its breed kind. This then has another development because what happens is not everybody agrees what a great terrier should look like. So it all depends on the judge you have and what, you know, their entirely subjective opinion about what a particular kind of dog should look like. So what we have in 1865 is um, John Henry Walsh, who's a very kind of well-known writer on sports and and field sports and, and dogs. He comes up with this idea that he takes a pointer dog called Major And what he says is, okay, let's have an agreed standard on what a pointer should look like. And he takes Major, who he thinks is an ideal type of a a pointer dog, and breaks Major's physiognomy down into points. So his head should be a certain shape, and you would get so many points for having a particular shape. His legs should be so long, and he would get so many points for this. This becomes what we now know as the breed standard, so in a sense, Major um, is a really important dog in dog history because he's the first dog to be kind of given a breed standard. And these standards are then used um, in dog shows to judge all pointer types You then have the formation of the Kennel Club in 1873. The Kennel Club then adopts and ratifies breed standards. And that's how we get Kennel Club sponsored shows being the go-to place where you you would show your dog, against the Kennel Club agreed breed standard. Um, And that's how we have these kind of nationalised and then subsequently internationalised ideas of what particular breeds should look like. The other thing that the Kennel Club does is introduce the, the Stud Book in 1874. And this is where you can trace the lineage of your pedigree dog that is bred to particular standards and so it all kind of happens in that sort of 15-20 year window of real activity around classifying what certain kinds of dogs should look like and insisting on a lineage a dog lineage where you can track the the heritage of those parents the Victorians refer to it as blood and when they talk about breed what they're what they mean is they're talking about blood and and where that dog comes from and how do you know that it's it's a purebred dog. Um, it's all about blood.
2: So how, how did you get to be in the Kennel Club? So um, I sort of imagine there must have been a lot of debate about what made, like you are saying, what made these dogs, you know, the, the perfect dog. Who made those decisions?
3: So it's really interesting. So obviously it's all men. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, and we could talk about that a little bit later if you like. Um, so it's all men and it's largely... So the dog fancy, as it's called, is very fraught with um, class, social class divisions. So uh, most of the aficionados of the dog fancy originally are either upper class gentry or very, very working class ratters, and beauty contest types. So there's two very distinct kinds of fancy. The ratting working class fancy is associated with low life, and it's usually kind of terriers and toy dogs. The gentry um, fancy is associated overwhelmingly with sporting dogs. So what's interesting is, and partly why the Kennel Club emerges is, there's a real antipathy over kind of who gets to say what a dog should look like but also over these shows because what the shows do is open space for commercial interests as well and what commercial interest does is introduce a question of probity so if this is all for profit and these shows are being run by entrepreneurs who aren't necessarily interested in dogs or dogs best interests how do we police these and how do we ensure um, a standard because What we might not appreciate now is that pedigree dogs were created initially, supposedly, in the interests of dog health. That's what people are doing when they're trying to classify what a dog should look like. All the rhetoric around it is around dog health and and being in dog's best interests. So what the Kennel Club does is try and resolve a lot of these conflicts and disputes about probity by establishing, of course, an upper class gentry leadership of this body that will regulate uh, dog breeding and dog showing. So yeah, it's overwhelmingly kind of upper class. You can join, however, so the Kennel Club is actually an overarching body of lots of distinct breed clubs so what the Kennel Club does is kind of give authority and legitimacy to, to distinct breed clubs. And it's probably much easier to join a breed club than and then sort of become affiliated to the Kennel Club through your breed club. Women get a look in in 1894. So almost well, it's, well, it's 20 years, 21 years after the Kennel Club is founded. They're not admitted to the actual Kennel Club. What they are, what they can join is the Ladies Kennel Association. And the Ladies' Kennel Association has a really interesting role in policing the kennel club. So, what the Ladies' Kennel Association often lobbies and campaigns on, so they have their own dog shows and everything, but they also try to police the standards of the kennel club. So, for example, um, with bull terriers, a lot of the dog shows were about showing dogs with cropped ears. Now, none of those dogs were fighting dogs because that was illegal uh, by the end of the 19th century. But because Bull Terriers had been fighting dogs in the past. The breed standard allows for cropped ears where the argument was that you would crop ears to stop them being damaged in a dog fight. The Ladies Kennel Association is really pivotal and important in campaigning to get that practice banned and to get the kennel club to out to prohibit the showing of any dog with cropped ears. So the Ladies Kennel Club is a really interesting kind of check on the kennel club um, as it's run by men.
2: Definitely. And were these um shows, were they, were they attended by the public? Could you go and watch these shows? Like you might go and watch Crufts or something today.
3: Ooh, yes, yes. So uh, definitely. And that's partly where um all the dispute about commercial interest and making these things a commercial enterprise comes in. You would go to a dog show for a fabulous day out. You know, and they're often at places like Crystal Palace, where you might go to see, you know, an exhibition of all sorts. Crufts, when Crufts is founded, Charles Cruft, who establishes Crufts, is known as the British Barnum, which gives us an idea. Barnum is, of course, uh, famous for his circuses, his freak shows, and this is what kind of Crafts is is targeted as it's it's kind of some kind of big circus. It's some big parade. It's not necessarily about dogs. So again, there's those disputes about what does commerce do, and is com is making these things commercial in the best interests of dogs. If you're a paying punter, you can, and there are sliding scales of admission fees, so it's accessible, dog shows are accessible to working class people, you can go and have a grand day out. You will see lots of dogs, um, but there'll also be sideshows. There'll be um, refreshments. It is a kind of a big day out and it's, it's fun. It's meant to be fun.
2: One thing I was quite interested in, in, in knowing is trends in, in dog breeds across the kind of centuries. So in the medieval period, you know, what, what, are, what kind of dogs were, were popular and how does that change um, as we go through history?
3: So we often see images, medieval art often has an image of um, a, an aristocratic woman and a greyhound, um, or what we, we would think of as a greyhound type. They often symbolise privilege. So um, in the 18th century, if you read any Jane Austen, you'll see that pugs are really popular with um, fashionable ladies. So different breeds are, are really popular at different moments in time. We have a huge upsurge in the popularity of Bozoi at the end of the 19th century. And this is partly this part of this moment where everything Russian seems really um Exotic in Western culture, and so, and the bourgeois are part of that kind of exoticism of of the East in Western culture. And um, so, so you do get these trends. Um, you often get particular dog breeds associated with particular kinds of people. So in the 19th century, terriers are often associated with um, low life, particularly kind of your your heavier kind of terriers like Bull Terriers, and this kind of idea of low life as um, a working class fancy uh, a lot of manchester terriers are associated with working class men um, and the idea that a lot of uh, men working class men would take a terrier to work with them um, this is partly to keep vermin at bay um, but it's also just company and companionship so different kinds of dogs are popular with different kinds of people at different moments in time what we've seen recently is, of course, you get, I mean, nothing's changed in a sense. So you have something like uh, Game of Thrones and, you know, husky dogs are everywhere. What happens is usually is that they have a huge moment of popularity. And then we we discover that people find living with these animals actually is actually quite challenging. And so you'll then get a spike in um, those breeds in rescue centres. So, but yeah, we're, we're very, very susceptible to being influenced by what's hot in culture right now.
2: Just actually talking about rescue centres and things like that, when do we start seeing kind of rescue centres being set up and people actually looking after the welfare of dogs? So
3: the very first kind of official rescue centre is opened in Holloway in London in 1860 by a relatively obscure woman called Mary Tealby. And she calls it the temporary home for lost and starving dogs. Now, it's temporary because um, lost dogs, she hopes to be able to reunite them with their families. Starving dogs refers to a population of stray dogs. Um, And what she... What ideally hopes when she sets up the centre is that those um, starving dogs, that people will come to the home and adopt them. So it's kind of the very, it's really radical what she's doing. Um, And it's the beginning of that kind of adopt, don't shop. It's the beginning of, you know, rehoming initiatives. What happens is Mary's very quickly overwhelmed. Um, because there's a huge population of starving dogs. Now, Mary's home becomes what we know as Battersea Dogs' home today. There's a direct line between what Mary's trying to do in Holloway in 1860 and and it becoming Battersea Dogs' home. What we also see, however, is lots of other cities being inspired by Mary's, what Mary's trying to do. So it's really interesting when she launches this in 1860 and she publicises it, she's met with an awful lot of ridicule. Because there are so many stray dogs, people can't necessarily understand why you would be trying to rescue them and save them. So it's a really curious journey where she goes from being held up for public ridicule for, you know, being a silly woman who's sentimental about dogs to then actually by the end of the century, lots of other cities trying to do a very similar thing. And so for example, in Liverpool, there's um, another temporary home for lost and starving dogs by the 1890s. What all these homes find is that it's that the populations of stray dogs are enormous. Once you start trying to help them, once you start trying to see them, it's it's just huge and what they end up having to do is, is having to end the lives of an awful lot of these dogs because it's not viable for these homes to keep all these dogs so a lot of them are put what we would call being put out of their misery but some are rehomed and the ones that get rehomed tend to be the ones that have a recognisable breed and so you can you can get your your lovely um king charles spaniel from a rescue home by the end of the the 19th century. Um so yes yeah, so it's it's kind of it's an interesting story that's not necessarily straightforward and is quite fraught with good intentions and the difficulty of delivering those when faced with overwhelming numbers of stray dogs.
2: Yeah. Another um question that that's come up is um about feeding dogs. So obviously now there's there's Loads and loads of sort of different varieties of, of dog food you can give your dog. Obviously, that wasn't always the case. How have sort of attitudes towards you know what you how you feed your dog how how have they changed?
3: Oh, hugely! So in the kind of seventeenth and eighteenth century, a lot of um, pet dogs, lap dogs, would eat kind of from the kitchen, from the human kitchen. So if you if you had meat, you know you would be giving meat to your dog as well. There's this huge explosion of keeping dogs for companionship in the 19th century. And along with that goes a huge explosion in services and products that are, are manufactured for dogs. So what we see is in, in the 19th century, you can buy dog biscuits. Um, they're usually kind of described as cakes um, and they, they will be cereal-based mostly. There is a line of thinking where People are anxious that the more meat you give your dog, the more aggressive it might be. So there's lots of debate on whether or not dogs should be eating meat and what kind of meat. Of course, a lot of them do have meat. And we have um, the sale of horse meat. So most dog meat-based products in the 19th century are actually based on horse meat. This is often called cat's meat, but it is actually intended for dogs as well. What we do get is by 1860, um, an electrician from Ohio arrives in Britain called uh, John Sp- um, James Spratt, and he sees... Um, a market opportunity um, because what he notices on the dockside, so the legend goes, is lots of people giving, sailors giving their old bits of cake and everything to dogs. He sees a market opportunity and he starts, he patents um, Sprats dog biscuits and dog cakes this becomes huge it's absolutely huge and it's not necessarily the quality of the dog biscuit it's that James Spratt is exceptionally good at marketing and advertising and so by the 1870s he has adverts in all the big dog press all the dog magazines he's also sponsoring kennel club shows and Charles Croft, who becomes affiliated with Crofts, is actually the general manager of Spratt's Dog Biscuits. Okay. And so, this, yeah, so it's, it's kind of this really interesting commercial link. And so they're sponsoring Kennel Club dog shows to the point where they become known as Crofts. Charles Croft has an extraordinary uh, grasp of sponsorship and marketing. He's exceptionally clever. He actually started work at Sprats in 1865 as an office boy. And it's just, this is extraordinary that we still use his name now to talk about these enormous dog shows. Uh, but yeah, but Crufts as a dog show begins with Sprats Dog Biscuits.
2: Monica Duval um, on Twitter wanted to know, um, when do we first see dogs start to be trained um, as service dogs for disabled people? So that's a re- that's
3: another really, really interesting question. And again, has a much longer history, perhaps, than we would anticipate. So there are um, images from the Roman period that suggest humans and dogs working together where a human has uh, an impairment. There's evidence from the Middle Ages to suggest, uh, again, these kind of dog-human partnerships. What we see is in the mid-18th century, so around the 1750s, is this becoming more um, systematised. And sort of in hospitals in France and Austria begin to Realise the potential of dogs to work in partnership with humans to overcome um, disabilities. It's actually the First World War that kind of catapults this into a much more global, um, systematised method. And so, of people incur lots of disabilities during the First World War, and German medical practitioners begin to in- investigate how dogs might be harnessed to work with humans to. Um, Enable humans to to have more what we think of as more independence. There is a shift in thinking now that it's this is more about interdependence, and and about humans and dogs working together to maximise the possibilities of both of both um, partners. In 1929, there's um, a training college that opens in America called The Seeing Eye, and that really runs with this idea of a human-canine partnership, and that that it's possible to achieve quite a lot by working with the psychology of both and and working in harmony. Uh, In 1934, Guide Dogs for the Blind is established in Britain, which again is this kind of, we see this much more formalisation of assistance dogs and yeah since since then I mean, we've all kind of anybody who watched Blue Peter as a child would know yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know that, that, that really close affiliation so I think so by the end of the 20th century that idea of a human canine partnership where to enhance the capabilities of, of both parties um, has become much more embedded and we we think of assistance dogs in a much broader um, set of circumstances now whether I mean the there is still debate on how assistance dogs are trained and if it's always in the best interest of the dog and I think the the shift towards thinking about assistance dogs as working in partnership with humans is a shift towards thinking much more positively about the welfare of the animals involved as well as the welfare of humans.
2: What about medical treatment for dogs Um, so veterinary care and things like that when when do you first sort of see um, you know bespoke services for for dog health? So it's It's
3: quite late in the 19th century, so vets become increasingly professionalised during the 19th century, but they treat overwhelmingly livestock and horses. Horses are very expensive, and that's largely what vets, um, vet services are oriented towards. You do have um, some veterinary practitioners who will attend dogs. These tend to be very valuable dogs um, or much loved dogs of the aristocracy. It's not a major branch of practice though. It's much, much later in the 19th century when dogs are firmly established as kind of pets and there's been this massive growth in the market for keeping dogs as companions. Veterinary practitioners begin to realise the potential of this as a market. What we see is a correlation as well where as horses, the number of people who keep horses declines, we see the market opportunities for treating small animals um, increase in pretty much direct correlation. Most people wouldn't be able to access a vet to treat their dog in the 19th century. So what people do have is um, they often have a home medicine chest where, and it will keep things where you could perhaps treat skin conditions, uh, worms with varying degrees of effect. A lot of dog manuals will suggest that you can perform your own surgery on dogs and the general advice is you just need to take the plunge and be brave, oh. and your dog won't mind, <laughs> which I'm not sure that oh, always is. On the kitchen out. table. Um, yeah, <laughs> totally. Um, so, but it, what we see is a lot of remedies that people would use for humans, they, and hopefully they're not practicing surgery on, on other humans, but, uh, <laughs> but they will use them for their, their dogs. You do have pharmacists. And sometimes a pharmacist will treat a dog. Some medical practitioners for humans will also treat a dog as well. It partly depends on what your resources are and who you have access to. In 1881, there's a a Veterinary Surgeons Act that actually makes it illegal for anyone not trained and qualified as a vet to claim to have any kind of veterinary expertise. And again, we see this recognition of veterinary practitioners that there is a market for small animals. Um, By the end of the 19th century, there are vets operating small animal practices. Again, it's, it's quite small and it happens in urban places long before it happens in rural districts. But throughout the 20th century particularly in the interwar period we see a huge growth in small animal practice so yeah and it's i mean again it's expensive but poor poorer people do have access to veterinary treatment, um, largely through charitable organisations. So the Royal um, Veterinary College of Surgeons does, um, from 1879, operate a clinic where um, poorer people can bring their animals for free treatment. A number of dog charities also pay for the treatment, the veterinary treatment of animals. So from the 1890s, our Dumb Friends League, uh, which is renamed Blue Cross, will give out tickets that enable poorer people to access veterinary care for their dogs. We have the formation of the People's Dispensary uh, for sick animals. Um, and again, that they that's what they specialise in. There is a little bit of conflict between them and the veterinary college because most of their practitioners, when the PDSA begins and not qualified vets but that's resolved in the 20th century so yes yeah, so there is there's options by the end of the 19th century for most people who keep dogs to access some kind of medical care rather than having to perform surgery themselves. <laughs> okay, <laughs>
2: yes. And kind of, you know, we started with the beginnings of dogs and perhaps it's be quite good to end with the end of dogs, I guess. So how kind of our reactions to to our, you know, our, our best friends, our dogs dying, what, how do people deal with that grief? Has that changed? And what, you know, the practicalities of what actually did we do with, with, with the dog's remains?
3: Yeah, so again, this is a really good question. And we have evidence suggesting that You know, from the beginning of keeping dogs as companions, people have really struggled with the death of of a dog. So by the 19th century, we start to see an increase in memorials to dogs, Lord Byron. Uh, famously installs a monument to his Newfoundland, Boatswain, in 1808 at his home, Newstead Abbey, which kind of gives people permission. This is such a well-known memorial. It gives people permission to acknowledge that the death of a dog can be a real blow. For much of the 19th century, if we look at diaries and correspondence, there is, however, a taboo about talking about pet death in public so what we see is the the surviving letters and correspondence where people do talk about it are overwhelmingly people who are single people who perhaps don't have children or who have had um fraught relationships with other humans where they their dogs become effectively their significant other where where those dogs die um we we see people really struggling to cope, but also being aware that telling people they are mourning for a dog and that they're devastated by the death of a dog, that they will be thought of as silly and absurd. So Jane Welsh Carlyle, who's married to the historian and biographer Thomas Carlyle, her dog Nero dies in 1860 and Jane is completely distraught. She's devastated. She doesn't want to see anybody. And what she's worried about is that people will think her absurd, and that's the word she uses, for for having such grief about a dog. And so, and it gives us a sense of how lonely that experience could be. What we have at the end of the 19th century is the beginning of commercial pet cemeteries. So the very first one in Britain is in 1881, and it's in Hyde Park in London. It triggers a trend for establishing pet cemeteries as a thing, as a space for feeling where you can commemorate in public this relationship with a dog. It's still... So by 1929, the Manchester Guardian says, pet cemeteries are becoming quite common, Um, That's not necessarily true. They're still largely in big kind of metropolitan places. But in 1922, Liverpool's RSPCA opens a pet cemetery that aims to be much more egalitarian. So commercial pet cemeteries were quite expensive, which was quite exclusionary. The pet cemetery the RSPCA in Liverpool open is based on you can bury your dog for a donation, And that donation is a minimum of two shillings and you have a full year in which to pay. And that's a really important moment in establishing a principle that everyone, no matter what their position in society is, has the right to mourn and commemorate their dog. In 1994, Blue Cross established a pet bereavement support service. Um, It's still going. And since COVID, actually, during COVID and subsequently, the demand for that service um, has rocketed which suggests that there are still lots of people out there who struggle to find support um, when a dog dies,
2: I feel like that's a bit of a sad one to end on. So I'm going to add just one more question just to kind of lift people a little bit before we we say goodbye. And one of my favourite question that was given to us is from Twitter. And that was, where does the song, how much is that doggy in the window? Where does it come from and why does it exist? Just to just to finish it off on a nice note.
3: That's a lovely one to finish with. So it's, um, it's a song recorded by Patty Page in 1952. It's released in 1953. And I mean, I did drama classes as a kid where we all sang this, this song. It comes from a moment when the pet shop so, the pet shop becomes a thing in the interwar period. Previously, they'd largely traded in birds, but with the expansion of, of pet keeping, pet shops in the interwar period start to think much more about how to market a broader range of animals um, at full sale. And what you have is they will put, the, they start to understand the importance of marketing and window display. And so, what we see is they will put their most winsome puppies <laughs> and kittens. In their window, like prime position in their window displays. In 1946, um, Pathe Pictorial released a series of very short films called Dusty and Dave. And these are for children. They're um, a film that is Dave is a little boy, he's a kind of a sort of street urchin type. And the very first film has Dave looking through a shop window and falling in love with a Celium puppy called who called Dusty and the whole series of films like starts from that moment of looking through a shop window seeing the love of your life and just knowing that you have to be together uh Dave Dave doesn't have enough money for Dusty and so there's this thing of like how much is that doggy in the window how do how do I be united with the love of my life oh. and it's and the first film is this lovely story of a very kind lady um making up Dave's um shillings so that he can he can live happily ever after with uh with Dusty oh, <laughs> and so and so how much is that doggy in the window come to this very specific moment of um, pet shop keepers really understanding that getting a dog and acquiring a dog is really about love and emotion and an emotional connection but of course it's also fraught with can you afford that that dog in the window. So yeah, so it's, it's a really interesting kind of moment in time that tells us an awful lot about the ways in which keeping dogs, how we get them and how we live with them and how we think about our relationships with them have really changed over
0: time. That was Professor Julie Marie Strange. Her most recent book, The Invention of the Modern Dog, Breed and Blood in Victorian Britain, is co-authored with Michael Warboys and Neil Pemberton and published by Johns Hopkins University Press. If you'd like to submit questions to future episodes of our Everything You Wanted to Know series, then be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter at History Extra, where you'll find call-outs for questions for future episodes. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Jack Bateman.